You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. Now we're going over to an issue that doesn't get talked about much, albinism. Natalie Devora lives with albinism and is a global advocate for people with the skin condition. Her memoir is called Black Girl, White Skin, A Life of Stories. In it, she writes about growing up in East Oakland's large Black community with a fair complexion back in the 60s and 70s. And she shares her traumatic experiences of physical bullying and sexual assault by a family member. But her story is also filled with a lot of hope that she found through school and the albinism community. KLW's Janae Darden spoke with Natalie Devora. Natalie, welcome. So great to have you. Thank you. So happy to be here. Okay. What is the right term to use when referring to people with albinism? Well, it is just that. We are people with albinism as opposed to what has been used up until the last few years, which is the word albino, which there's a big movement that came to change that language because we are not our condition. We are people first. So you grew up in East Oakland during the 70s. How did your family treat you in regards to your albinism? Well, you know, I, right, I did grow up in East Oakland um, in the 60s and 70s. And my family overall, I I was treated just like everybody else. I was expected to um, do chores like everyone else, to participate in ways that anyone else. And the one thing I can really um, thank my parents for, my biological parents for, was insisting that I utilize every aspect of my vision. And they were very um, committed to making sure that I could be as independent as possible. And the extended family is a different story. But certainly in the immediate family, I was expected to do what everyone else did. And, um, and I was, you know, I was simply one of the children, one of four children. And so people with albinism, um, just to further explain, sometimes have uh, issues with visual impairment. Right. Um, and most people with albinism have some form of visual impairment. Um, it depends on the type of albinism primarily. And uh, that has a direct correlation to ocular development, eye development. And, um, and so most of us, or in my case, I can say I am legally blind. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, however, I have a lot of functional vision. How do strangers treat you? Because, you know, here you are, this kid who is fair-skinned, and you have a brown-skinned mother, brown-skinned siblings. So how did people react to you in public? Oh, my gosh. Well, that was, people always did a double take. Um, and if that was the only thing they did, that was that was the mildest piece. But primarily, you know, People would um, really go ask my mother directly, whose child is that? There was this belief that I couldn't be hers um, based on my skin color. Mm -hmm. And um, that was particularly, you know, jarring, though we, you know, though I, as well as my siblings, we reached a point as like we could see it coming, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, we were out in public and. My, my mother, who was fiercely, you know, protective of all of her children, 
would quickly educate them, you know? <laughs> so. But it's interesting, I know, for you, because having, I mean, the title of your book is Black Girl, White Skin, and sometimes you hear stuff that white people say that they wouldn't say around other black people because they don't know. Exactly. I, you know, I, I end up being this chameleon for, for people who choose to see what they wish to, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think it's beyond the visual of my skin tone. It, It also is about language and diction and, and honestly, let's face it. I live on an Island where, um, it is, there's a, you know, I am in the minority mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, many people don't even recognize that I am black American. And you dealt with some serious aggressions. I wouldn't even say they're microaggressions. Um, when you were a kid in Oakland in middle school, and this was during the seventies, something like black Panther, you know, party movement, racial tensions when, I'm thinking back. There haven't there haven't been many years where there haven't been racial tensions in the U.S. But I'm just thinking back to this time during the '70s, post Civil Rights Movement, Black Panther Party in Oakland, and you're at a middle school. But just that experience of black kids mistreating you because they assume you're white. Yes, you know I I firmly believe that middle school is probably the most difficult time for all kids. Because it certainly was for me, and um, being in that that time frame in the era where there was definitely a lot of upheaval, and there again was this piece of invisibility mm-hmm. where I wasn't recognized as uh, as black. And so, in, in the book, you talk about on top of dealing with the bullying um, that you were molested by a family member. And when you're dealing with bullying and you're dealing, so you're dealing with bullying at school, you're dealing with abuse at home. How did you see yourself at that time? And you were young, you know, you were a kid. How did you, how did you see yourself at that time? Um, you know, I, at different points in that, I felt I did at least I felt like I was not valued, um, that, that I was just a thing. I wasn't a person. I wasn't, you know, that I, um, I wouldn't have had the language for, I wouldn't have had this language at that point, but that I was this, this being to be utilized by people in my family because, Mm -hmm. I looked, I presented a certain way and I was for them this piece of forbidden fruit that they could um, capitalize on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I became silent. I, mm-hmm. you know, I really went into this very deep inner place as a means of survival And what gave you hope? Mm, my intellect. Um, the fact that I knew that the way out was through um, 
academics and being able to leave home to go away to college, that that's the piece that gave me hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it, it was the best thing that happened. And um, one of the other pieces is that my biological mother, she really, and I think this was her act of resistance is that she, at one point, she's like, you have to leave. You have to leave. That is the only option for you. Um, and so I knew I wanted to leave, but then being told that I had to leave was was a bittersweet, you mm. know. Was she saying that for your protection, or was she saying that as far as saying, like, you don't fit in here, so you have to leave? It was both. Mm-hmm. Um. Who gave you hope? You know, I honestly, there were teachers who saw mm-hmm. what they saw the possibilities um, in me. They, they saw what I didn't see at that time. Mm-hmm. And they proceeded to foster that, you know. Um, and I am so grateful to, to those teachers. Um, because without them, I don't quite know what my future would have been. Mm-hmm. And one teacher in particular. One teacher in particular, um, you know, who um, really saw all this potential. And she and I became really, really close uh, with the support of my mom. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, she subsequently became my second mom and um, and continues to be mom, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and it's not even second mom. She's mom. And, um, you know, and she is my daughter's grandmother. And she it's, it is, you know, we have a bond that is unbreakable. So how old were you when you when she took you in? I was 18. Okay. Still a kid. I was still a kid. Um, What made you become an activist? Because I'm sure some people don't even realize that there is an albinism community of activists who are are doing work to uplift and help other people with albinism. What got you into the movement? You know, what got me into the movement, I feel like I had been on the, the periphery of that movement for so long. And I had been a part of other movements. I'd been a part um, early in the eighties. I'd been a part of the disability movement and um, learned a lot from that and went on to be part of the um, black lesbian movement and, you know, and things like that. And then after, actually it was after I became a parent and I was like, so someone actually asked me a question and said, what, what is the one area of your life that you have yet to explore and why haven't you and what is stopping you? And I reflected on that and realized it was time for me to remove albinism from being compartmentalized and to embrace it on a bigger level. Mm. And so that's what happened around um, 2012 or so. And, um, I jumped feet first into the movement. So you wrote this incredibly powerful moving book 
very personal book. Um, what do you hope people get out of it? You know, what I really hope is that pe- people recognize that no matter what experience you are having in your life, um, that one, that there, that you can overcome that and that there is hope and that it is, that hope is possible, you know, and that change is possible. That was writer and albinism activist Natalie Devora speaking with KALW's Janae Darden. Natalie's book is called Black Girl, White Skin, A Life in Stories. And she's currently working on a global anthology about albinism. Find out more at KLW.org. 